strong voices. We don't need to sugarcoat things, let's put it that way. We need to be real, we need to be honest. We're in trouble. And the only way that we're going to get through this is by working together. We have to get serious about closing the gap, and I don't think governments have been serious. We need the scientists to help us to reduce the emissions, and we need to get communities and people out on country and learning about the environment and reconnecting with landscapes again, just the way Aboriginal people have done for thousands of years. communities have had the solutions to end this injustice for 30 years. The governments have chosen to not prioritise saving black lives. Enough is enough. Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Warda, hello, good afternoon and welcome back to Strong Voices, coming to you from the Karma Radio Studios on Aranda Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through vast channel 911 on 8 Ken FM in Alice Springs and Bantua via the Karma app and online at karma.com.au. Well, today it is Friday, the 17th of December, 2021. I'm Paul Wiles, and many thanks for tuning in once again. Coming up on today's program, the best of Strong Voices for 2021 will be revisiting a range of interviews from throughout the year. In March, uh, Jenny Hubert caught up with the curator of the Pajama Festival, Rhoda Roberts. In May, a campaign was launched to build the country's first national truth-telling museum and healing centre for survivors of the stolen generations and their families. Karma's Joseph Jagamara Egger caught up with the Kinchella chair and stolen generation survivor, Uncle James Michael Witty Welsh. And in June, residents of Ginger Porter, Santa Teresa, celebrated the relaunch of a new sports oval. Philippe Perez caught up... Uh, with a number of people at the event, and he'll be bringing that report. Philippe will also be joining us a little later in the program for a latest news update. But first, back to January, Australia Day 2021, where Professor Frank Bongiorno, head of the School of History at the Australian National University, where he's an Australian political and cultural historian, questioned how, as a nation, we can mark and respect the love of country felt by many settler Australians when the same country was taken from the First Nations, whose love for it is as intense as the pain is for their loss. I puzzle over particularly the 26th of January each year and have been in some ways surprised, I guess, at how rapidly I think it's being transformed. I mean, I, I think that there, there's been a lingering fantasy that it could play the kind of role that, say, Independence Day uh, in the United States plays or Bastille Day in France. But it, it, it's not that kind of day. It doesn't signal uh, independence. It doesn't signal the you know, a kind of revolutionary tradition. It's a profoundly 
ambiguous day for, for Australians. And uh, I think that ambiguity and, 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 and sort of disagreement over it are very much now actually a part of the day. They're not kind of, you know, sort of some sort of uh, um, unfortunate development that, that has grown up around it. They are actually intrinsic to the meaning of the day for what, what it actually means for most people now. The day itself has come under various names during the last, you know, 230-odd years. It's sometimes been called Anniversary Day, Foundation Day. Um, there are a whole range of things that it's, it's been called, but it's invariably been um, really a white celebration. It's been a celebration by settler Australians of uh, their occupation of, of the country. And you know, to the extent that Indigenous people have been included, it's, it's sometimes been in a very tokenistic way or indeed even in a very patronising way through things like reenactment and so on that we've seen, uh, certainly not in recent years, but in, in, the, in the more distant past on the 26th of January. So I think that one of the things that comes out of the, the controversies and debates of, of recent years is that, that the meaning of the day is shifting rapidly. It's obviously much more contested than it was. I mean, it, it, it's been contested uh, for quite a long time, a lot longer than a lot of people realise. I mean, um, uh, Aboriginal groups proclaimed a, a day of mourning as early as 1938, the time of the 150th anniversary, the sesquicentenary of British settlement. So it's not that the questions haven't been asked in the past. They certainly have. And, um, you know, many people also remember the controversies around 1988 and the bicentenary of that year and uh, the, the massive uh, Indigenous protest in Sydney uh, on that day uh, and, 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 and just generally the, the, the kind of debates that occurred in the lead-up to, to 1988 and the bicentenary. So it's not that you know, the kinds of, of debate we're having are, are entirely new, but I think they're much more intense. And there's, I think, a, a much greater tendency to confront uh, the, 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 the reality that this can never really be a day of unity or national unity. It can't perform that kind of function for Australians because of those very different meanings that it has for, for white Australians and Indigenous Australians. Mm. Going forward, how do you see this, this concept of... Australian people acknowledging that that burning question of the land was stolen and while some attempts may have been made uh, to appease the sufferers we still have a long way to go. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, the, the sort of em empirical data and research we have on uh, the Indigenous experience in Australia compared with non-Indigenous people bears out the kinds of things you're saying about things like um, uh, economic uh, inclusion, employment, educational opportunity, life expectancy, I mean, the whole gamut of those sorts of issues. And, I mean, I guess my own sort of vision for Australia Day, and in a sense, I think this is already happening in a way, is that it, it is becoming, I think, an occasion where debates about this are happening. So, you know, there's a, a kind of a, a one strand of, of, of opinion um, that, you know, perhaps we find especially on the political right, but not exclusively uh, among settler Australians, that basically says, you know, fire up the barbie and let's have a celebration uh, of our, our history, our present and our future, and, and that kind of celebratory type uh, approach to, to the 26th of January. But it's pretty clear that, that you know, that, that kind of 
approach is now under enormous pressure um, from critics. And, and, and one of the results of that is that I think, you know, what we're getting around, not just on the 26th of January, but in the, the lead-up to it, is um, almost a season in which these kinds of issues are examined, I think, um, particularly closely. Now, it wouldn't be healthy if that's the only time of the year where we had uh, debates about those things or, you know, we sort of ignored those issues at other, you know, other times of the year because we can't afford to do that either. But um, to my mind, it, 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 you know, one of the, the things we're having a kind of a, uh, almost a season, if you like, where um, there is probably more media attention given to those sorts of issues around the 26th than certainly than one would have seen even 10 years ago. The local Aboriginal people in your area, what did you grow up understanding about your connection as compared to their connection? I was born in Nil, in, in the Wimra, but I didn't really grow up there. I mean, I left quite early and, and really grew up in Melbourne. And I have to say, the teaching of, of history around the Aboriginal experience was pretty limited for my generation. I'm 51, almost 52, so I did my primary schooling really in the 1970s and my high school really in the 1980s. And I recall very little until about year 11, and I did Australian history in year 11 and year 12, and, and there certainly was some teaching um, of, uh, you know, the frontier experience. Um, uh, you know, for instance, we learned about things like the Mile Creek Massacre and, and you know, just the, the phenomenon, I think, of, of frontier violence. But uh, very little, I have to say, early on, and I contrast that, you know, with the experience of my own daughter, who's 15 and has obviously gone through uh, schooling uh, here in Canberra over the last few years and, and you know there, there's much more um, attention and sensitivity I think around these sorts of issues and uh, indeed in, in one of the high schools, uh, not the one uh, that my daughter attends but a, a neighbouring one, they actually learn Ngunnawal language and culture um, so you know that, that's a stark contrast I think to my own experience of growing up really or being schooled in Melbourne uh, in the 1970s and and, and 1980. It was something we came to very late, actually, and I think that's probably not an unusual generational experience. Just trying to get back to your article about looking at this issue of one set of connection as compared to the other. I mean, they're both significant, but at the end of the day, the big issue that has is, is not been looked at is one was taken from another. Well, that's right, and I think that's the great sort of ethical problem and conundrum um, for settler Australians generally. I mean, you know, um, those who migrate to Australia, their descendants, um, you know, people like me, I guess, who are descended from Italian migrants, will often have a very strong attachment to country, to uh, the places where we, we, we grow up, the places we live, uh, the places we associate with our own family and, and, and uh, uh, those sorts of connections. But, you know, we're, we're always living with uh, um, the knowledge that this country was taken from Indigenous people, that it means something quite different um, to those people, um, that uh, their 
capacity to to connect with country has often been very damaged by the, the, the state, by the settler state in Australia, through you know all of the ways in which Indigenous people were uh, oppressed, whether it was through you know being moved around, the stolen generations, uh, a whole range of ways in which Indigenous life was was uh, disrupted and undermined, and and so that that is the great you know sort of question and issue at the heart of movements for reconciliation, is it? Well, you know, is there a, a kind of a common ground that can be created between those two types of love for country? Is there a place where they can somehow meet up? And I think that's, you know, a kind of, you know, it's a semi-philosophical question, but it's also about history and politics. And I, I think, you know, a lot of the debates that we're having around Australia Day and and uh, more generally, perhaps about, you know, the, the history of this country uh, and its relevance to the present come back to that sort of issue. Um, I mean, I remember, you know, 20 years ago when reconciliation movement was very much at the heart of, of so much that we were talking about in this country, you know, it seemed to me that was the question that, that, that a lot of people were asking. Reconciliation seemed to depend on being able to do that. And I think 20, 25 years on, we're still a bit unsure about whether that's actually possible. School curriculum is very important, I think. I mean, there's nothing like reaching young people and, and, and inviting them, provoking them to think about, you know, some of the most pressing issues in their own history and their own society. So I think what happens in schools matters a lot. I think what happens in the broader kind of mass and popular culture matters too. So whenever I see, you know, a, a film, um, an Australian film, that is dealing in a um, both an engaged and a sensitive way with aspects of this history and there have been a number of examples of this over the last you know 15 or 20 years I think I'm also seeing a process of education going on too I think um, whenever there have been surveys and research into where do Australians learn about history um, you know we often think oh that would be school or that would be reading a book but actually that's not the case most Australians learn about history through popular culture they learn through film, they learn through television and, and I think that to the extent that, that those often difficult um, painful episodes in Australian history um, are you know that they feature in, in, in popular culture of film and television in that sort of way we will get continuing transformation in people's understandings of, of the past and what it means for the present Professor Frank Bongiorno, many thanks for joining us Been a pleasure, thanks Paul Hey, this is Cathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Well, back to April, where Alice Springs residents saw another edition of Parjama. The regular lighting festival featured performances by Shelley Morris, the Hermansburg Choir, and Electric Fields live on stage in front of the Rangers. It also saw a hip-hop workshop with rapper Dobby, metal sculpting with the Jabaka Art Centre, skateboard paint and skateboard painting with Spinifex skateboards. Karma's Jenny Hubert called up with Pajama curator Rhoda Roberts. 
Hi, everyone, and I just got to say thank you for everyone around town, um, but particularly the TOs and everything for making us feel so welcome here on Arunta Country. Uh, Parchim is going off. It's amazing. Um, we've just had so many families, families from homelands, everyone coming in to have a look. It's a, the light show and also all the installations. So I've been working with a lot of artists around Alice Springs and, and out across the art centres. Who are the artists and uh, I believe you have bush cooking too as well? Yeah, uh, Raylene Brown uh, for, and uh, Mark Olive uh, have been doing workshops out there. Uh, just it, They're actually really, really funny. It's like the cook and the chef. They're so fantastic, but they're so passionate about our bush foods and looking after you know land and so forth. But a lot of the artists we worked with, we wanted to look at the masters because, you know, it's 50 years since the Papunyatula movement began and it just changed the world when they looked at Aboriginal art. So Mrs. M.K. Turner, OAM, is one of our featured artists and she did a, a, a series of artworks a few years back that was all about looking after country. So that features in our installation called Revolving Culture. So we gave the whole festival a theme of future culture so it was all about the transmission and that generation after generation still carries those footprints of our old people. And so we had the masters like um, Aubrey Jungalar and MK and then we looked at other emerging artists such as Raymond Walters and uh, Jungler Chris uh, Chantelle Mulladad from Santa Teresa, Ginger Porter, she did this most amazing work. It's on camels, so because of the relationship with the Garn towns and, and the Cameliers, and her work is also on the Garn train. Yes, that, that's amazing, that, and it looks really good too. Oh, it looks amazing. You should have seen her face, Jenny, when, when that train came in. Her face just lit up, and I don't think she was expecting it to look so amazing and so big. It was just great. Rhoda, how did you collaborate and bring everybody together, all the traditional owners together, to talk about it? So they started it in 2016, and Northern Territory major events began the festival. I didn't work on it till a year later, so this is my fourth year, and Parchma's its fifth year. And what we did was we set up Parchma Reference Group, which is made up of members from the three estates across Alice Springs. And so literally I'll go to them with an idea, like, the art centres put in the expression of interest from all their artists. We'll look through those and then work out, get an idea of um, what type of light installation we could use. And then we take that to the reference group and they're just incredible. I mean, the team could not operate without them. And they just guide us on, you know, cultural matters and what we can and can't do and they look at some of the ideas and I'm sure they think I'm a crazy woman sometimes, but then they've just been fantastic. And also, Rhoda, today you had a special crew out there filming us today too. 
it's just been amazing. The, the the people who produce the show that's called AGB Events, and they were the people who did the Vivid Light Festival in Sydney. So they're known internationally now, and I think because of their reputation and now the growing reputation of Parchma, can you believe we had the Today Show? And so they've been out there for three days doing the weather cross from Alice Springs, but it's been an opportunity for our artists to talk on national television, which just gets it out around the country. So that's really exciting. It's to have amazing. Mm. It's amazing how quick uh, social media can be and everyone's <laughs> reaction to it too as well. And uh, anything happening tonight? Yes, we have on our stage, our music stage, which is at the Rangers show. That begins at 6.45 and we've got Dobby, who's a rap artist. A lot of the young fellas will know this young man. He's amazing. He's also done all the light installations, sound installations with the lights because he's a composer as well. And we've got uh, workshops. We've got the light shows. And if you come out... There's the Rangers show, but I would advise everyone to go into the show because a lot of the lights are at ground level as well before it reaches the Rangers. So it's worth sitting down in the bleachers and watching that. And then we have in conversations every night as well. So it's just been so popular, so many people coming. If you do come, you can register online just because of COVID, but you can also do it at the gate. If you've never been to um, Bointois, you've got to come because it is just amazing. Everyone makes you feel welcome here, but the country, I mean, it's the heart of the country, really. And, you know, having Parchma here is just fantastic. Could you tell us what time and where the show starts tonight? Yeah, well, it's good to catch it at dark, but if you come out early, you can do workshops. Um, there's also, we've got a really good food area, which we call the hub. So we open the gates at six, but we tend to do the first light show when it gets dark at 7.30. I'd like to say thank you to Rhoda and our next song coming up. Well, that was uh, Jenny Hubert there talking with the curator of Parjama, Rhoda Roberts. G'day folks, this is Kutcher Edwards and you're listening to Our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. Yes, you are, and welcome back. Well, the Kinchella Boys Home Aboriginal Corporation is raising $5 million to build a museum on the former Kinchella Aboriginal Boys Training Home property at Kempsey. The property was a home run by the New South Wales Government between 1924 and 1970, where it housed between four and 600 young Aboriginal boys who'd been forcibly removed from their families. Kinchella chairperson and stolen generation survivor, Uncle James Michael Witty Welsh said the proposed museum and healing centre will play a critical part in Australia's truth-telling journey for stolen generation survivors and their families. He's talking with Karma's Joseph Jagamara Egger. Today been um, sorry day for uh, want of better words really is something that um, to us it's a chance to uh, be able to come together or even uh, talk and what, what I'm doing now is um, the one thing that uh, myself and other brothers have learned is that this pain that we carry is a trauma mm. and trauma is not just a word 
it's a disease of the process of, that they've done to us to reprogram in our brains to be whatever they wanted us under their policies to be and that we can't, couldn't heal or can't heal unless we talk about it. Myself, for a lot of years, held this silent inside my body and not knowing uh, what it was doing to me. As in, I was turned to alcohol when I got of age, and through the alcohol, I realised that I wasn't killing the pain through the trauma, and that I was slowly killing myself. And my children, as they come along into my life, um, were being—I locked them away. I, could, I couldn't socialise in the, my own community anymore because when they took me away, the dynamics and the, the language of the community when I got back was different to me. I spoke differently, so I didn't fit in no more. I couldn't talk about going fishing with them or hunting with them or whichever, whatever children do. I wasn't there. So I was an outsider in my own land, outsider inside of my own community. So the search to try and stop this pain from being going on and keep it with us was something that I've started on a journey to find. I worked hard. I was a welder for 30 odd years and whatever else that I did was just everything that needed to be done. But I wouldn't let my children be babysitted. Sometimes I wouldn't let my children go in the hospital. Sometimes not school. And mm. this was, I stopped them from socialising. So I realised then, this is not right. And it wasn't. And I didn't know what was wrong. I do now. It's been identified as a trauma. The trauma that was being given to us through the policies. So this day is the day that we have a chance to voice about it. And now, as um, I'm talking to you, there's a chance of me healing because the only way that we can heal is by telling the story. And in believing that the people are listen, that's to heal us. It can't heal any other way. It needs to be told. Yeah, yeah, I really admire your story, and I've just been looking at sort of the history of, obviously, the boys' home, as they called it. Um, you know, it was saying there was over four to six hundred boys coming throughout that, and girls. But how did you get to a stage where you could articulate your pain? Joseph, my, my brother's son's name, Joseph. Sorry, Joseph. No, you're right. I, that's, a, that's a very good question. And, and about the articulating, is um, if you, know, you was here with me, I would show you my left hand. Um, my articulation used to be my fist. Mm. And I got teeth marks on my fist and scars on my forehead and face and nose. And my articulation was that way. And when I got involved enough and turned out, I was, to be able to talk to you now, it's something that I couldn't do. I'd get angry. I'd get drunk. 
probably later on to come and fight, but then I get locked up. Not all the brothers went through the same pattern that I went through, but I went in and out of the jail system. I didn't mind the jail system because I knew about being locked up. I knew about that. What was hurt was when I was out in the community and I was out there and I would, people were looking at me funny, treating me funny, talking to me, didn't like me. My children are the same. I didn't realise what that was. I fell in love, married an Aboriginal woman, beautiful woman, and that was the reason I stayed there. I watched my brothers and sisters, there were seven of us taken away from mum. I watched my brothers and sisters come back and get rejected in the town. I didn't know why they moved on to the other places until later on in my life. And I stayed there because I was in love, and love will do that. And we didn't have any love when we were taken. When we got separated at the station at Platform 1, that was the end of our family love. Mm-hmm. Um, my children say, but Dad, you love us. I said, that's my love. And love. It's not the family love that was taught to me and loved to me. So I needed to find a way to be able to do this. And KBH, the Kinsley brothers, they've always said, go on, Michael, you're our speaker. I didn't like that, but I respected it. And so I would do it a little bit at a time. And now they'll tell you that they can't, you can't shut me up. But, <laughs> but <laughs> and I tell them, don't blame me, you started me. Yes, so, you know, and, and the other thing that I say is that as, as brothers, when we come together, you will see the oldest children playing ever because we never had a childhood and we still muck around and joke and laugh with each other. It's a beautiful thing, but even in that arms, we were individually, we were separate. I was Wonka Bong people. And some of the mothers and all of those in there were, you know, were Adnick, Miller, Barkenji, Viripoy, all of those. But we still have our trust. And that was the thing that we couldn't do with anybody else. We couldn't trust anybody. It's all the distrust and the evil thing that happened to us. We couldn't understand why people weren't coming to help us. Why were they letting this happen to us as children? So that's why the articulation is here now. I know how important it is for me to keep going with this. And, and I thank you and I thank all the people that are coming in to view us because it's, it's freeing us of a trauma that's inside of our body that we don't want. But we don't want it to go on to our children. We need it to end with us. It has to stop with us. Having a truth-telling museum, um, what does that mean, having that capacity? I, I said this earlier, Joseph, and I'll say it to you because, you know, um, this this December I'm turning 70, so I haven't really got a lot of um, time left, unfortunately, but um, it's, it's all going to be valuable time. Now, when, when we talk about the museum and, and truth-telling, um, uh, I'll... To identify how I feel about the importance of that place, the KBA, I I wanted to burn it down or get rid of it like everybody, the other brothers too. But that doesn't heal us. It just hides the fact that the place is gone, but it's not there. It's inside of us where this pain is. So when I talk to you, I can see the brothers playing. 
football, cricket, whatever. I can see him be belted. I can all of this while I'm talking to you. And I'm in a base now that I, I, I handle that a little bit better than the other brothers. And this is why they can't articulate like it is. But when you, when you, when you look at the opera house, as an icon for the non-indigenous people, I don't hold anything. We don't want any, we don't punish anybody. We don't want anybody to be hunted or go away. But all we want is to be treated equal and an understanding of an equal quality and an understanding of this pain. When you see the Hopra House, it's a beautiful big icon to them. And when you see the Sydney Harbour Bridge, the Kodangan, whatever they call it, that's a beautiful big icon for us. Now. I'll, put, I'll say this to Joseph, that Arbour Bridge connects North Sydney to the mainlands. So it's a journey across there to the mainlands, right? That museum that we're talking about, Kinsula, that is a, like a harbour bridge to us to connect us back to our communities and our families by the stories being told and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren being free of a tumour by other people going there and looking at this and understanding that that fellow in the gutter, he doesn't want to be a drunk because of whatever happened there. He's there because there's a trauma that hasn't been able to allow him to be able to be part of society. That was Uncle James Michael Witty Welsh talking with uh, Karma's Joseph Jagamara Egger. Well, in June, residents of Ginger Porter, Santa Teresa, celebrated the relaunch of a new sports oval, which saw improved facilities for AFL teams playing in the community. The formerly dusty oval now has been fully grassed with the MCG sending goalposts to the remote community. New lights installed care of raised funds from traditional owners and a new irrigation system which uses heavily filtered bore water. Philippe Perez spoke to a number of people at the event earlier this year, with the first in this package being Annalise Young from the Macdonald Council. My name's Annalise Young. I'm the um, Council Services Coordinator for the Macdonald Council and uh, Chairperson of the AAAC and also um, President of the Sports Committee. Tell us a little bit about the work that got you to this point today. Well, it's been a lot of work and um, a lot of meetings for this to happen and yeah it's it's been a long time how proud are you that uh this oval has been relaunched with new grass and people playing on it now what 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 are your feelings seeing oh we're really proud the whole community is really proud and excited and what makes it more exciting is we've got the goalpost from the mcg so yeah tell us a little bit about that collaboration what how did you talk get uh, able to secure that kind of thing. Was there a lot of um, talk involved? Yeah, there was a lot of talk involved and just kept pushing at um, meetings that it was a need to have grass on the oval. Yeah, and it's, um, yeah, health-wise as well. Because on the dirt track, it wasn't, or on the dirt, it wasn't good for our kids. Yeah, so it's been a bit of a health initiative as well. How important is it for people here in Jinjipoda having this oval um, relaunched like this. Do you see community benefiting from it? Yeah, it benefits the community a lot and the community are really happy to have this oval as it is now or where it's come to now. Okay. Um, what sports are going to be played on this oval? Obviously AFL, you're going, uh, will this 
oval be um, open to anyone um, to play on, or who are you hoping to have here in the future? Oh, well, we're hoping to have uh, to have our um, local community competitions instead of us driving into town. We could have them played here as well, and yeah, for our community sports weekends. Yeah, so we're going to just try and use it as much as we can. It must be also nice to see young ones here playing Auskick and hopefully the future AFL stars. Yes. Yeah, the young ones are really excited and, yeah, happy that we finally got grass on the oval. What sort of job opportunities have come out of this for the community? Um, yeah, we had a few local guys um, helping out with the start-off with the drainage and putting in the pipes. Yeah, so they've kind of got um, a bit of training out of that and then ma- ongoing maintenance. We're lucky to have um, the mower donated to us from the MCG as well, so our local guys have been trained to use that. Yeah, so it's been good. Do you think, you know, there's ongoing job opportunities as well? Yeah, there probably will be, like maintenance on the oval, yeah. All right, thank you very much. So many people have given their support to bring this to reality. That is impossible to thank them all. However, special thanks go to... So, first and foremost, to Melbourne Football Club. This is a special relationship that has grown from our supporting them with Indigenous immersion camps for their staff and players to better understand their country through to their support for this amazing oval we see before us. To CEO Gary Pert, Jimmy Martin and all at Melbourne Football Club, we thank you so very, very much for our beautiful oval. Melbourne Cricket Ground have sent us these mighty poles, mighty goalposts, not poles, sorry, (laughs) the mighty goalposts we see before us and the amazing mower that we have used to bring the oval to fruition. A wonderful thank you to CEO Sally McIndoe, to Michael Salvatore and to all of your team. We are sad that our cousins, the demons, are not able to be here today. We were so looking forward to opening out oval today. And to the game, we will have all this official part of the day. It would have been wonderful our, our fellas to play together with Wheels, Liam Chara, Aaron Davies, Austin Wanamiri <laughs> and the other team's players. We are waiting for that game and for the next AFL Indigenous round to be played here at the Gingerboard Oval. The finance of the Melbourne Football Club NT government and Melbourne Football Club has turned the crossing of our oval with its beautiful goal post from MCG into the reality. The lights of the oval were made possible by the traditional owners and residents, community lease money. They continue to provide ongoing maintenance for the water and electric fields. The lights from our traditional owners and the coal post from the MCG has made an already amazing oval into something truly spectacular. We send a huge thank you and a huge round of applause to Melbourne Football Club, Melbourne Cricket Club and our traditional
Taunus for their support. Thank you. I'm Bill Yan. I'm the member for Namajira. What's your reaction to the opening of this oval here today? Just oh. tell us your thoughts. Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's great to be out here uh, in Santa Teresa. Look, the oval and the opening has been a long time in the making. A lot of people have been involved in making this happen. And look, one of the proponents is Chancey Pake, the former member for Namajira. He done so much work to get this oval happening. And unfortunately, Chancey can't be here today. He, he's stuck in Darwin working. So it's a bit of a shame, but... Um, his work and said the hard work of government um, over the years has got us to where we are today, which is green grass at Santa Teresa. They're calling it the, the MCG of the desert. What do you think an oval like this can do for the community of Ginger Border, Santa Teresa? Well, this, it, it brings all sorts of opportunities to the community. Um, we've been talking to AFLNT about bringing games rather than having them in town out in the community. So. Yeah, it'd be great to have games out here rather than in town. It brings people to the community. There's opportunities for the store. There's all sorts of things. There's just there's lots and lots of positives that go with it. So, um, and it's just a, it's a great space for the community, not just for footy, but all sorts of other activities as well. I know that there were plans to have a junior port of team play in the senior competition of yeah. the Central Australian Football League. That didn't come to pass this year, but obviously uh, there might be some ideas of that happening as well. Yeah, and that, that's a, obviously good good future days ahead. Yeah, there's some discussions going on around that. So, and I think I don't know. I can't speak for AFL, but I think the 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 AFL could probably accommodate another team in town and with decent facilities out here the opportunity is to bring those games out to here as well but also further afield Unamu, Papunya I know they're thinking about Hermansburg if, once they get grass on their oval so there's lots of opportunities in Central Australia for AFL Yeah and that was what I was going to get to do you see that like a lot of AFL ovals uh, benefit from having the grass. I mean, I know some teams in some remote areas who sometimes prefer the dirt, but um, obviously, yeah. like, you know, having grass kind of gives opportunities for people to make it into the big leagues maybe one day as well. Well, that's right. Look, it's tough for everybody to have grass. Water security on some of our remote communities is always difficult. So we're worried about drinking water, let alone water to be able to water an oval. So they're, they're playing on dirt, but I reckon given the opportunity, they'd be happy playing on grass. And it's just, it's a far better surface to plant. Less injuries, for sure. This is so important for the community of Santa Teresa and so important for the footy team of Ginger Porters. Um, of course, they're triumphant over Hermansburg in the grand final. And of course, I remind Chanty of that on a regular basis because Santa, uh, sorry, Hermansburg's in his electorate. So we've got a little bit of a rivalry going on there. So I'm, I'm sure that um, we'll be waiting for the grand final to see if the Ginger Porters get up over Hermansburg again. Bill Yan, thank you very much. Jeez, thanks very much. All right. Uh, that was the member for Namajira, Bill Yan, speaking with the Karmas Philippe Press. You also heard traditional owner Philip Alice and the council services coordinator from the McDonnell Council and chair of the AAAC. Thanks for tuning in today. You can listen back to this program and the previous programs on karma.com.au. Next week, the final show of the year for 2021. Uh, more highlights from interviews from 2021. We'll be taking a break over January and Strong Voices will be back in February next year. My name's Paul Wiles. Um, have a safe weekend and we'll be back again uh, next Friday with the final show. Thanks for tuning in. 